Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, and that is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. My co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Tuesday, October 15th, which means that it's nearly been a year now since we lost Stan Lee. Stan passed away back on November 12th of last year, and in the past 11 months, a lot of Marvel fans have been asking, well, when is... Disney gonna do something of size. They did a couple of you know, full-page ads in the trades, and and of course there was that title sequence that was specially created for Captain Marvel that ran uh, in front of, of that Marvel Cinematic Universe back in March. But to talk with folks at the studio, that was kind of the problem. Here they were launching this brand new franchise, first one that Marvel Studios had ever built around a a female superhero. And then right behind that, here comes Endgame. That's effectively the capper to the Infinity Saga. Or with you know, Again, okay, so Spider-Man Homecoming is the actual capper to the series. But in both cases, there's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money involved in putting these two films out the door. And if you talk with folks at Disney, they didn't want to necessarily do anything that would depress ticket sales. And the fear was that if we make too big a deal about Stan being gone, maybe people will be too sad to go to Captain Marvel or Avengers Endgame, which that was also supposedly another aspect of why Disney didn't necessarily turn a key immediately on a, a Stan Lee tribute because Stan was 95 when we lost him. And a lot of the folks that he worked with at Marvel are, are of similar age. And so the notion of asking a lot of people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, to drop everything and come to a tribute, it's not a good thing. So what they decided to do was, well, look, you know, we know we have New York Comic Con coming up in October of 2019. We're the Walt Disney Company, and we have access to several theaters in New York City. And why don't we do something on October 7th, literally the day after uh, the 2019 edition of Comic-Con ends, and people will still be in town, or if we, we invite them far enough out, they'll know to stay in town, and we can do something up of size. And this is what they wound up doing at the New Amsterdam Theater. They, they were in the theater one of the nights that Aladdin wasn't being presented, and they really put on a great show. They got Clark Gregg, who basically acted as the host of the evening, he was joined by Migna Wen, Agent May from the show, but we also had Tom Hiddleston, uh, Loki from the Marvel movie show up, uh, Charlie Cox from the Daredevil show on Netflix. He took part in this as well. And Joe Casita, the chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment, you know, was there. Likewise, comic book legends like uh, Bobby Layton and, and Todd McFarland. And they let people who genuinely knew Stan get up on stage and talk about him. And, and McFarlane told this great story about how Stan in recent years had dearly missed Joan, his wife of nearly 70 years. Uh, she predeceased Stan in July of seven, uh, 2017, and he, he never really got over that loss. And it was also a video component. Over the course of the evening, the onstage hosts would reference a Jumbotron that had been set up on the stage of the back wall in Amsterdam. And 
They then run video tributes from people like Mark Hamill, Mark Ruffalo, Lou Ferrigno, Jimmy Kimmel, Kevin Smith, Evangeline Lilly, and Elizabeth Olsen. And one of the moments that evidently really put the audience to tears was when Paul Bettany, uh, the actor who plays Vision in the Cinematic Universe movies and is about to reprise that role on the WandaVision limited series for uh, Disney+, Plus, he talked about his mighty Marvel marching society button that evidently he sent away for when he was a kid. What's cool about the mighty Marvel marching society button is that there are big letters, big white letters. It says, I belong. And then in small letters, it's to the mighty Marvel marching society. And what Paul pointed out is like, here's Stan Lee pushing inclusivity Back in the 1960s, giving a home to all us geeks and nerds who read and love comic books long before inclusivity was even a thing. So Bettany stood on stage and thanked Lee for giving us freaks and weirdos a place to belong. And Hiddleston, the other hand, just in his kind of trademark snide fashion, was just sort of marveling at the fact that thanks to all these cameo appearances and, you know, the various... You know, Marvel-produced TV shows and, and that sort of thing that, that Stan's been in more movies than I have. And he also ended it at, on a serious note to, you know, to the effect of, look, even though Stan is now gone and the world is far poorer for that loss, the stories and the characters that Lee helped create will live on. Stan started a story with no end and it changed the world. We couldn't stop it if we tried. So downside is only people with tickets to this event saw that it live and in person at the New Amsterdam. And I want to say last Sunday, there was a one ticket available on, on eBay that the last time I looked was over, you know, the bidding was up to over $300. And the comic book that they handed people as a program for the event is now going for $500 on eBay. But I remember this is Disney that produced this thing and, this is Disney that on November 12th is is about to launch its new subscription streaming service, which is going to eat content like a kid with a bag of Halloween candy. So they're trying to decide. They, they had a, a film crew there. They're trying to make the determination now whether they cut it down to what was taped that evening to 60 minutes and including the video components and show that on ABC or whether they opt to just put the entire thing, this Marvel Celebrate Stan Lee, over at Disney+. Plus. So I guess we're just going to have to wait to see how that settles out. In the meantime, what else is, has gone on since we last recorded, Aaron? What, what had you noticed in the news? I guess Ryan Reynolds met with Marvel. I, th I think that's non-news right now. He took his picture in front of the Marvel Studios logo and tweeted it out, and now that's like a, a news headline that he met with Marvel. He was meeting with Feige to discuss Deadpool 3. This is the first Deadpool that's going to be produced since Disney acquired Fox. And Tiger's on record now. He said, I want... Deadpool to continue, it will continue to be R-rated, and it will go out through 20th Century Fox. But the interesting thing is Reynolds, being Reynolds, wants to mix things up a little bit. And there was that wonderful gag in Deadpool 2 where he's at the house, of, you know, where the, the, the X-Men live. And he's going on that rant about how there only ever seemed to be two characters 
in this place. And there's that moment where a door, as he's ranting, a door opens and you literally see like five and six different X-Men in this room off to the side. And they see that it's Deadpool ranting and they slowly close the door. He wants to double down on that idea that he wants in this next X-Men movie to literally bring in some of the, the, the bigger players from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, if, you, if, you know, if you've got the tools in the drawer, why not use the tools in the drawer? So now that's the conversation that's going on. And, and once they agree, I guess it's Rhett Reese and Paul Warnick who, who wrote the, the screenplays for the first two Deadpool movies and are now out doing a publicity for Zombieland Double Tap. They'll get started at on Deadpool 3. I don't see that really playing out because that allows a backdoor of all of the previous X-Men movies into the mm-hmm. MCU through a Deadpool wormhole, if you will. Hmm. And uh, okay. I think w- what's going to end up happening instead, th- this is just mm-hmm. one of those spitball ideas, Ryan Reynolds mm-hmm. is going to stop in the, in the first like 10 minutes or so into the movie, or if he goes to mention the X-Men, the movie's going to stop. Ryan Reynolds mm. is going to walk out on a stage in front of the screen with a chalkboard and then break down how Fox used to do this. And then Marvel, who is now owned by Disney, bought that. So we're not really allowed to talk about this side of the universe. However, we can talk about the MC, you know, and like there will be this really fourth wall breaking moment that you have to have in a Deadpool movie. And it will reference something in in our reality, and it will be stupidly funny. And then the movie's going to continue with that little bit of primer video chunked in the middle there. I think that's how they're probably going to solve it, something along those lines. Given the number of times you've been right in the past six months, I'm not going to bet against you. But but again, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out and, and who ultimately does turn up in Deadpool 3. Downside is, given as busy as Ryan Reynolds is right now, the earliest Deadpool 3 can get in front of the cameras is fall of 2020, which means the earliest we're going to see the Merc with the mouth again up on a movie screen is either fall of 2021, more likely the late winter, early spring of 2022. The first Deadpool movie came out in February, the second one came out in May, so they probably will revisit that sweet spot. And while we're talking about future Marvel movies, Scarlett Johansson is out doing publicity right now for Jojo Rabbit, which Tika Watiti, the director of The Ragnarok, directed, and is also playing Hitler in, if, if you can believe it. Scarlett's been talking about that superhero version of Ocean's 8 that she and all of the other actresses who appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe have been pestering Kevin Feige about. Mm-hmm. And she sat down with Variety early this week, and she was quoted as it saying is that, you know, if you look at this collection of actresses that now do the Marvel Cinematic Movies, uh, Universe movies, they're such a, a, an incredibly powerful bunch when they come together. It's They're explosive and unstoppable. And so, yes, I've been pushing for a movie that brings all those female superhero characters together. I think audiences want that, and I'm definitely one of them. And based on what folks that... Marvel have been telling me that whether or not this, again, Ocean's 8 kind of thing goes forward is entirely dependent on how Black Widow does next May. They're literally going to use that as the canary in the coal mine because the whole notion of, okay, yes, we got a billion dollars this year off of Captain Marvel. 
But Black Widow is an older, more established character. She's been on the canvas since Iron Man 2. We just bumped her off in uh, Endgame. So let's see if people actually turn out for a film that features her. And then let's see if we can come up with a script that can logically bring these characters together. Just this past weekend, Brie Larson and Tessa Thompson, while these two were on stage at the Ace Comic Con Midwest show, an audience member asked if there's this thing that's going online now where people are supporting the idea that Captain Marvel and Valkyrie could be a couple. And it, it turns out Larson and Thompson are actually friends in real life. So they said, look, we're totally on board with this idea. So the moderator who's on stage at this point says, all right, so what you're saying is Valkyrie has found her queen? And Tessa's response was, look, Bree's my real-life queen in general. So if this sort of relationship becomes canon in the Marvel movies and comic book, that's cool, too. That it would be interesting to see if they did Marvel Studios would actually go forward with that. Because, again, getting back to Taika Waititi, who, like I said, is out doing publicity for Jojo Rabbit, he got asked, of course, about his next Marvel Studios production, which is going to be Thor Love and Thunder, which is going to start shooting early next year at Fox Studios Australia in Sydney. He specifically got asked about the comic books, uh, the series of comic books that Thor Love and Thunder are based on. And for reasons I'm not going to get into here, Thor becomes unworthy to, to wield his hammer. His longtime love interest, Jane Foster, is able to pick up the hammer and then becomes the new God of Thunder. But during this exact same period that all of this is going on, Jane is diagnosed with breast cancer. And so she's in the middle of treatment while she's off doing all these amazing superhero things. And whenever she sets down her hammer, she then becomes a human again, a human whose body is ravaged by cancer and the dichotomy of the two different storylines going on, a woman's personal battle with breast cancer and, you know, the superhero battling the forces of evil uh, made for, you know, this is uh, Jason Aaron wrote the story, very compelling uh, a series of books. So Taika was asked, okay, so you, you actually going to pursue this idea. What Taika said is like, look, it's the breast cancer storyline is a really powerful part of these books. I think it would be really uh, cool because, uh, you know, Jane's fighting this thing and there are two battles going on. Personally, I really love that that storyline. But whether it ends up in the film has yet to be seen. We're not sure yet whether or not we're going to do a complete lift of this storyline. You know, these things change during the shoot and sometimes even when, when, when we're editing the movie. So I guess at this point, Aaron, we're going to have to wait till November of 2021, which was when Thor Love and Thunder is scheduled to be released to theaters to find out whether or not Jane Foster's battle with breast cancer actually makes it into this movie. And speaking of waiting, folks, I apologize. You're going to have to wait till Aaron and I get back from this commercial break, where we'll then discuss our favorite parts of the Marvel comic books that didn't necessarily manage to make it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Okay, so again, just to recap here, according to Taika Waititi, Marvel Studios is dithering at this moment about whether or not Jane Foster's battle with breast cancer is going to actually make it into the movie version of, of Love and Thunder. 
And hearing that, that made me think of other famous storylines from the Marvel uh, comics that have yet to make it into the films. And first and foremost, at least in my mind, Aaron, is the Iron Man Demon in the Bottle series from March uh, through November of 79. Did you ever get to read that? Or Yeah, actually, I, I think I have those in the box. They do get pretty brutal, don't they? Or Well, yeah, they were. there was a time when it was... They were trying to have a, a moral backbone of sorts. The mm-hmm. government had asked them to do an anti-drug thing. Mm-hmm. And that was when Stan did, it was a Spider-Man issue where Harry gets hooked on smack or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, oh, you can't publish that. You won't get the comic book code of approval because it's a character on drugs. And they're like, yeah, but this is an anti-drug story. It's about how Harry's sick and, you know, he's going to die and all this other horrible stuff because he's on drugs. And we have to be able to demonstrate the the evils of drugs so that the kids know why they need to stay off of them. And that was the first comic book that was published that didn't get the comic book code of authority seal because they went against that. And it was around that same time of, of history, you know, looking back now that they do want to tell stories that have a positive message, but in a dark and realistic way. And Mm -hmm. alcoholism is one of those things that, it, back in the 70s, we still had things like, I want to say like Archie Bunker. I don't know if Archie was always drunk all the time, but mm. there were the shows where dad always had a beer in his hand, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. he wasn't sloppy drunk, but he would be a little bit more verbally, not quite abusive, but, you know, just mm-hmm. mouthy. Mm-hmm. And and that thing was normalized back then. So at in that year, to have a story that is demonizing alcoholism and having a, a major character plagued by it is one of those we're trying to make a, a, a take a stand, make an observation on society, use the things that are not right in our everyday culture and, and point a light at it and say, how can we combat this? How can we bring awareness to it? That is kind of one of the reasons why I'm surprised because they did show Tony in the MCU having alcoholic beverages they just never got them outside of iron man 2 they had them Mm -hmm. drunk and they had that drunk iron man versus war machine fight which i thought was hilarious and and funny Mm -hmm. i don't think it necessarily promoted alcoholism but i thought that iron man 3 or somewhere down the line they should have had a legit demon in the bottle thread where it wasn't just tony's ptsd it was his alcoholism along with a healthy dose of his PTSD on top of that. One of the reasons that Favreau reportedly really, really, really wanted Robert Downey Jr. for this role was something that happens in real life, influences art, and the whole notion of given Robert's troubles, which we don't need to get into here with substance abuse, kind of made him a great fit Mm -hmm. for Tony Stark, with the idea being that, at least in Favreau's mind, the notion was that it was Marvel Studios had committed to making this series of 10 films. And so he was kind of hoping that if we do this right, I'll at least get to do two and three Iron Man movies. And if I get to do a third one, 
I can actually do the Demon of the Bottle story. So, as you mentioned, the first Iron Man starts off with Tony going to that, you know, weapons uh, demonstration out in, in the field, and he's literally drinking in the limo on the way to the event and has a, a glass in his hands when they show off the, you know, the latest innovation from Stark Technology. And then, as you mentioned, in Iron Man 2, there's the scene, the party that gets out of control at his house, and Tony's had way too much to drink. And here was the thing. Favreau felt that, okay, I planted the seeds. I can definitely make use of this for Iron Man 3. But then in, um, what is it? Uh, I want to say in Spider-Man Homecoming, they actually, without without realizing it most likely, have Tony Stark mm -hmm. drinking and driving. Because the Iron Man suit helps Peter. Mm -hmm. And Peter's mm -hmm. like, oh, thanks for coming and rescuing me. And Tony says, oh, I'm not there, technically. Mm -hmm. And the helmet opens up and it sees that it's empty. And then it cuts oh, to Tony. Right. And he's drinking. Right. A, it looks like it's a cocktail, like a mixer drink. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. in the span of that conversation, Peter says, are you driving or something? And it's him getting, it's Tony in his car saying something about, yeah, uh, engineering school would be good for you or something like that kid and he drives away and it's like mm -hmm. he just took a drink of an alcoholic what looks like an alcoholic beverage and now is getting mm -hmm. in a car and driving away which should have raised someone's awareness if if there's any mistaking they should have just replaced the glass with milk <laughs> you know but that's, i think it was a fruity drink a fruity a cocktail adult beverage so i don't know okay that that is an interesting point but but yeah to sort of back up the date here so they shoot Iron Man 2, April through July of 2009. August of 2009, Disney buys Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion. The following May, Iron Man 2 comes out in theaters, does very well. So well that Disney turns around in October 2010 and pays Paramount the equivalent of $115 million just to acquire the rights to distribute Avengers and Iron Man 3. Literally giving Paramount their share of the cut of distributing these two movies years in advance, just like, look, we're going to take this over. Here's your money. Go away. And then in December of 2010, Favreau opts out of directing Iron Man 3. Uh, he's going to direct uh, what was supposed to be Disney's equivalent of the Night at the Museum, a, a project called Magic Kingdom, where the gimmick was that once the gates close at Disneyland at night, they... The pirates walk out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Abraham Lincoln comes out of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And God help us, the little dolls walk out of Small World. Would you find that to be too derivative of Night at the Museum to be interested in that? Or is the Disney banner attached to that what would bring you in to, to watch that? It's one of these things where it is so obviously derivative. In fact, I know William Stout, the master illustrator, actually did a fair amount of development work on this, trying to sort of break the back of, well, how do we make this original? How do we make this not? Night at the museum. And, and this is a project that Disney's had in the works for the better part of a decade, and they just can't break the story nut. It so obviously comes across as a Night at the Museum ripoff. In fact, the, the real irony is now that Disney has bought Fox, which made Night at the Museum, Guess what they're doing, Aaron? They're making a brand new night at the museum. Oh, know, no, no, no. Oh, damn. They had the perfect solution. They have already screwed it up. <laughs> and what would that be? Night at the museum goes to the Magic Kingdom. 
they just well, they just <laughs> take the same cast of characters and they all mm -hmm. decide that they need a break from the craziness and they ship everything to to the magic kingdom to have a vacation and the magic breaks loose and the magic kingdom comes to life Okay, I want to point out for those in the, the legal department at Disney, the check should be cut and sent to Aaron Adams if you make this movie. I swear to God, if Night at the Museum 3 Magic Kingdom comes out, I'm calling my lawyer. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so February 2011, because John's now attached to Magic Kingdom and unavailable to do Iron Man 3, Shane Black comes on board. He's going to not only direct Iron Man 3, He's going to write it as well. So he sits down with the folks at Disney and they're like, I get what John was planning. I get that, you know, for Iron Man 3, we've been breadcrumbing Tony Stark having an alcohol problem. And given the horrors of what he experiences during the battles of the Battle of New York in Avengers, you know, this perfectly logical story reason for Tony to develop an alcohol problem. But it's like Marvel's now owned by Disney. Iron Man is a Disney character. He is beloved by children everywhere. More to the point, his toys are selling off the shelf. So Iron Man, as owned by Disney, can't have an alcohol problem. You have to find another thing to do with this, this film. So as you mentioned, instead of an alcohol problem in Iron Man 3, Tony ends up with PTSD. Well, uh, otherwise we'd be getting Tony Stark or Iron Man hip flasks or something like that. <laughs> In the, in the marketing department. <laughs> well, but here's the part of the story that absolutely fascinates me. So, so May of 2012, Avengers comes out. Very same month, Iron Man 3 begins shooting in Wilmington, North Carolina at the Screen Gem Studio. And so Shane Black is six weeks into shooting this thing, and he gets a call from Disney. And they're like, hi. We're now kind of concerned that because of what just is happening with Avengers, people are going to expect Iron Man 3 to be really big and be filled with giant action-adventure scenes. So what would you do if we gave you $30 million more? How would you spend that? Because we need a couple of really big action scenes to be added to this movie. So Shane, in the middle of shooting this movie, which again, you know, no alcoholism, PTSD, but it's like, now you have to figure out how to sh shoehorn in two more giant action scenes because we're worried that if people see this after Avengers and it's not big enough, they're not going to continue to support the cinematic universe movies. So as I understand it, the whole people falling out of the plane and doing sort of the monkeys in a barrel thing that was added after the fact. And you know, they spend all this money, and that's the one scene whenever Iron Man 2 was, or Iron Man 3 was shown on planes, that they'd automatically cut out. <laughs> <laughs> really? I didn't realize yes, that I mean, airlines would edit out things out of oh, movies that had, uh, uh, oh, that's kind of funny. Well, no, just, just the whole notion of, oh, a hole has been blown to the side of an airliner and all these people are flying out. It's like, yeah, that, that's a really good time to be going around handing out the, the complimentary sodas and tiny bags of peanuts. No, I'm so, just saying uh, maybe you should just pick a different movie altogether. You know, it's not like you want to run Airport 77 or whatever it was. That, you know? There we go. I think that's probably where it started. So there's a part of me with, with issue to the Tony Stark and the alcoholism thing that they don't want to address. Mm -hmm. I almost feel that it's irresponsible and it's not just the Tony Stark thing by itself, because if it were just that I maybe wouldn't mm -hmm. be so, and I'm not a prude by any means. 
I don't mm-hmm. mind if people have adult beverages. It's just when you when it goes too far and someone mm-hmm. has an issue, it should be addressed. And so Jessica Jones was another character that drank to the point where she should have been sloppy drunk. And for mm-hmm. the most part, you never saw the effects of alcoholism, but they showed her drinking a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that with those two characters looked at side by side is that if they don't make repercussions for sloppy drunk, something bad's got to happen in their life. Otherwise, it, it's almost encouraging like, yeah, you can go ahead and get drunk all you want. Nothing bad is ever going to happen, kids. That's almost the message they're saying by not addressing the alcoholism of a couple of characters. One of the more intriguing things you can do if you're, you're doing a show like Jessica Jones on Netflix is you're telling a long-form story. You're not artificially dealing with two hours or, in the case of Endgame, three-hour running time. You know, you have sufficient time to tell a story like that. So it's kind of interesting, given that they had, with Jessica Jones, the ability to do, what, eight to ten you know, shows per season tell a lengthy story. I guess that does seem like kind of a missed opportunity to sort of, you know, you know, she spends all of her time in a bar and, you know, she's the superhero. You know, what would that be like? If you played it with it in a funny way, you could almost have a drunken master episode where she's all, you know, swervy and bobby and and not got her stuff together, but still ends up accidentally dominating the crowd with some slick drunk moves. That's a great idea. Wow. They missed a lot of opportunities. I mean, the fact that they had the the blip occur Mm -hmm. and none of those Netflix shows ever addressed like a decrease in population or anything in New York or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was like life just never, ever changed during that time. And that was one of those reasons why with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah, they they mentioned that Thanos happened there in that last season or whatever, but they didn't really interact with any of that. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of why I'm glad that when we get to the Disney Plus and it's being produced by Marvel Studios and they're going to focus on more connection at the hip, even though I've been begging that, you know, it seems almost that they stop making everything so connected. It's like, well, at least Mm -hmm. if they're going to do it, they're going to do it right. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's my issue is... If you're going to do it, do it right. Otherwise, don't do it at all. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy for that. As we move further into the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, you know, for example, we have, when they announced they were doing Civil War, you read the Civil War books. Didn't you go in with a certain expectation of what this movie was going to be like? Yeah, but it's not what you're thinking. If you're thinking that I was Mm -hmm. expecting it to be like the comic books, I couldn't because half the characters that that took place in the comic book version of the story are not in the MCU yet. You've got no Fantastic Mm -hmm. Four, no X-Men, none of that. So it's going to be, you know, a lot smaller in scope. It's not going to involve the entirety of the, the Marvel Universe. Once you've established how many characters you've got, and if it's called Civil War and they've showed from the trailers, they showed everybody but Spider-Man in the trailers because mm-hmm. they didn't have that deal locked down right at that moment. That's true. Yeah, so, I mean, you got a sense of who the two teams were going at it head to head. So by the time the trailers got out, you kind of knew who was on what side. You just didn't know the details of the hows and whys they were on that side. Yeah, I totally did not expect comic book version of Civil War, but I did expect elements of Civil War because 
Marvel is cherry picking from their best stories and they've never had the need to when they retell a story, they don't tell it the exact same the second time. Oh no no. They change no it. Doubt. No doubt. What intrigues me is that they get further along. I mean, face it, the, the image of Cap and Iron Man fighting is in there. That panel from those books is in there. On the other right. hand, you know, it, they this series doesn't necessarily end with Cap being assassinated. Uh likewise when we jump ahead to uh, Thor Ragnarok and we get the Hulk as a, a gladiator in arena, that's clearly lifted from the Planet Hulk series of, of April 2006 through June of 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't get the whole he was tricked and put in a, you know, a rocket by a Nick Fury live model decoy. We just get him there. Given what happened after that, that the whole when Hulk came back to Earth and we got the whole World War Hulk thing, it kind of intrigued me that we then got as part of Avengers: Age of Ultron, you know, the battle between Iron Man and Hulk in that city in Africa. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like, oh, I like this image. Let's put this in the movie. But you know, just sort of strip away the story on either side. Yeah, there was a story that we had told a while back. For it was the Russo brothers were working on Winter Soldier. And it was Feige had seen a piece of art, or if not Feige, someone else very high up. But they had seen mm-hmm. a piece of art where it was a helicarrier that was in flames falling from the sky. Or it was like two or mm-hmm. three of them. And they basically ripped that piece of art off the wall, walked up to the Russo brothers and go, we want this in the movie. Actually, let me rephrase that. We're paying for the movie. This is in the movie. And then they had to figure out the story that led to being able to get to that image. And so you can't really, you know, be faithful to a comic book story if some random piece of artwork catches someone high up at Marvel's eye and says, we've got to find a way to get this in there, man. We got to. Well, but I I love that you brought up the Russo brothers because this is that story about the, what was it? The Avengers standoff series of books where that's where the, after all these years, it's revealed that Cap is actually a, a Hydra sleeper agent. But again, this starts in the fall of 2016, where when the Russo brothers are gearing up to do that giant shoot where Infinity Wars and Endgame are going to be shot in one giant year-long production, Anthony's brother hear about this storyline is like, oh God, we have to, have to, have to figure out a way to put this, at least do a nod to this idea. And that's where the whole scene in the elevator where he's he's got to get the Tesseract. And, you know, the whole notion of leaning in and saying, Hail Hydra. And it's like, yep, absolutely, you can have this, go ahead. That's literally just the Russo brothers nodding to the series of comics that started just before they started work on Infinity Wars Endgame. So sometimes the cherry picking can can work out in, in, in a good way. Again, we were just talking with somebody at Marvel uh, out ahead of recording the show, and they were talking about how, in addition to the meeting that Kevin Feige just had with Brian Reynolds about Deadpool 3, of course, now that the Disney and, and Sony have their agreement in place for a third Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, you know, the question is, well, where do we go with this? And supposedly what Feige did is threw down on a table a copy of Civil War, because in that, there's a moment where Peter Parker reveals his, his identity. Mm-hmm. 
at the request, I guess it's the secret heroes identification act mm-hmm. that, you know, that they, they have to give up their secret identities. And so he pulls off his mask and reveals that he's Peter Parker. And what Kevin wanted the people who were are working on the third Tom Holland Spider-Man movie to do was, well, look at what happens after this. Look how that impacts Aunt May. Look at how that hand, uh, impacts MJ and see if there's something there that they can use. They've already done that a couple times mm-hmm. over now because Sam Raimi's original Spider-Man, the Green Goblin, grabs MJ once he learns that Spider-Man's Peter Parker and chucks her off a bridge. And then Doc Ock finds out, well, actually, Aunt May, he, it wasn't because he found out her identity. It was, be, it was wrong place at wrong time. She was innocent bystander when they were at the bank where he, he mm-hmm. grabs her. But still, he, you know, Pete's got to save his aunt from Doc mm-hmm. Ock. And then you get to Spider-Man 3. MJ's back at the top of the tower, getting ready to be uh, fall off of Venom's webbing. We lose Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man 2, Amazing Spider-Man 2. So they've already done the whole, oh, we found out who his identity is. Let's go find the person that's closest to him because that's their only weakness. I just say, if you're going to work towards the Sinister Six, work toward the Sinister Six. I've already seen Aunt May and MJ be taken hostage at some point. Don't need to revisit that three or four times over again. Just like we didn't need to see Uncle Ben's tragic loss for the third Mm -hmm. time. They were able to skip that. So, you know, let's just move on with some new, fresh material and not have to worry about endangering the loved ones all the time. Speaking of new, uh, literally over the past day or so, a, a brand new story in regard to the Disney, Spider-Man, Sony negotiations regarding to Spider-Man broke. And can you talk a little bit about that, what, what you, you read? As far as headline bullet point goes, that Disney was mm-hmm. considering paying up to $5 billion to get Spider-Man back from Sony. And I think mm-hmm. it's worth it. I know they only paid $4 billion for Marvel, but Spider-Man is more than just the one character because Sony is currently right now, they've got a a Venom movie that was successful at the box office. They're working on a Venom Mm -hmm. 2. They're working on a Morbius movie. If a Black Cat Silver Sable movie ever happens, we'll remain to be determined later on down the road, but that was in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And the reason that these movies exist is simply because Sony really wants to build a universe built out of the Spider-Man villains that they have access to, since they really don't have access to Spider-Man himself, because he's Mm -hmm. been negotiated into the MCU side of things. And if they're able to generate revenue off of side characters of Spider-Man, then certainly Marvel could do it as well. And it would make more sense to have Black Cat actually show up in the MCU, not in the Sony Venom Morbius verse, where the Spider-Man hero doesn't quite exist yet. Because Spider-Man's the thing that ties all these characters together. If you consider how long Superman, the character, has been on television and in film, that goes back Mm -hmm. to since like the first TV flickered on in the first home in America, boom, Superman was right behind that moment on TV. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just Spider-Man 3, we're going to pay $5 billion so we can make a Spider-Man 3 movie the way that we want. It's mm-hmm. about the long game. It's about forever. It's about him in the parks without having to negotiate with Sony about the likeness of the actor. It's a whole bunch of stuff that will affect the revenue stream for the rest of the entire lifespan of their company. It makes sense. It does. It does. Let me share a a little background. 
They were negotiating when things fell apart. Disney evidently made an offer that they didn't necessarily run by the board first of $5 billion to acquire the rights to Spidey. And you're right. It wasn't just Spidey. It was all of the the side characters, the world, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was all of the stuff that you just talked about. Sony supposedly counteroffered with a, no, we won't do five, but we will do 10. At that point, the folks at Disney were evidently, we can't take that to the board. We can't, I mean, we, we paid $4,500,000 for all of Lucasfilm. And back in 2009, as we, we mentioned, you know, getting started with the feature section today, they paid $4 billion for what at that time, based on Disney's own inventory, were 8,000 Marvel characters. The Spider-Man headcount, if you... You do all the side characters, you know, Jay Jonah and, you know, and that sort of thing. There's roughly 100 to 150 that make up the Spider-Man universe. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing was they had prepped a presentation for the board. And back in, in, you know, 2001, we paid $350 million to the AA Milne folks. And we, we got the, finally got the full rights to Winnie the Pooh. And because of that, the last year that they're on record talking about how much they made off of consumer products related to Winnie the Pooh, it was $5.5 billion just in that one year, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Same thing in uh, year 2000 when uh, the Disney princesses, when they first decided, okay, we're going to go from marketing these princesses individually to, to literally their franchise. They're all friends. They, they hang out. They were making $300 million off of princess merchandise as individuals. By 2009, with developing them as a full-blown brand, they were making $4 billion a year. And this was this was actually going to be the presentation they're going to take to the board. It's like, look, I get that paying $5 billion for Spidey, that seems ridiculous. But again, it's not just Spidey. It's all these other characters. And you know, if you think about what we make off of Spider-Man merch now, in fact, remember that, that Disney basically frightened Sony back in 2010 to give up all of the merch rights to Spider-Man. They've had them since then, Aaron. Mm -hmm. So every time there's a Spider-Man movie or a TV show or that sort of thing, they're making Spidey money hand over fist. But ultimately is when Sony countered offer with the, the $10 billion. It's like, I, we can't. We cannot take that to the board. You know, they, they will laugh, laugh us out. If you look at it from Sony's point of view, as far as movie franchises that they have right now that are truly bankable, they've got Bond and that's about it. And with Daniel Craig possibly doing his last turn as Bond in this last film, if you were mm -hmm. to get, give up the Spider-Man franchise, there goes Spider-Man 3, there goes your Venom sequel, your Morbius movie, there goes uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2. Those were all mm -hmm. things that Sony was betting heavy on being successes. Mm -hmm. And that's four movies for the next couple of years. What are you, you going to fill that hole with right now? No. You know, absolutely. you can't. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. And from their side of the fence, I, I don't think, you know, using the term reasonable when somebody's asking $10 billion is a thing. But I get it. I do. If Sony continues to hold the rights for Spider-Man, uh, because you said that Disney was able to get the merchandising rights for Spidey back, right? So yep. they're just kind mm -hmm. of clawing a little bit of their territory back one handful mm -hmm. at a time. And if they mm -hmm. can't get the full nugget, the actual movie rights, because remember, they're able to put out all the animated stuff Spider-Man they want. If you look at what's coming to yep. Disney+, Plus, they've got a wealth of Spider-Man animated television. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. What they don't have are the movies. If they can't get that, and Sony says $10 billion, otherwise we're going to hold it for the rest of our natural lives, I think that Disney would do something like they've done before, and they would just stop publishing Spider-Man comics for like a year. Just kill it. Like they'll, they'll do a Spider-Man gets killed thing. Goodbye. They'll let him be dead for an entire year. Devalue the interest in the character in any way that they can so that all the work is on Sony. And then if interest ever does lag enough to where Sony's not making their money back and they can't afford to keep cranking out movies because they're just not making their money back on them, then eventually they'll be like, hey, we'll give it to you for $500 million. Will you do that, guys? And then Disney will buy it back. They'll bring Peter back to life magically through the comics. The Everything will carry on as normal and everything will be whole and complete again. Given some of your predictions have turned out, Aaron, I am not begging against you. The other thing worth considering here is that if you remember in July of 2013, Disney actually turned around and paid Paramount for the rights to the four Marvel movies that they had distributed, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, and Captain America, the first Avenger, just so they would then be able to have them for something like Disney+. Plus. Those are now officially Disney Marvel films. Right. So it's not really inconceivable. In fact, I, I would be fascinating. In fact, like, geez, I should have thought to ask this, that what did that $10 billion get? It couldn't have just been the characters. I wonder if they would have agreed to sell, oh, yeah, you the, know, the... You, all of a sudden, you would see Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home being advertised as coming to Disney+. Plus. As soon as we sign, as soon as the ink is dried on the deal, we'll have those mm -hmm. on the streaming service because right now they're absent. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Have you seen the the Have you seen the entire list of everything? I, I they dropped it just yesterday, and it was one of these things where, for, forgive me for saying this, but I, I, you know, every so often, someone would place an image up in the Twitter feed, and it, and it's just sort of like, I'm old enough that I actually saw. Uh, you know, the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again in theaters, likewise the Cat from Outer Space, and that's roughly three hours, four hours of my life I'm never getting back, and it's like, why would I watch that again? But that's one of the things that I think Disney Plus has going for it. I mean, obviously, we've been talking about the Marvel, the Star Wars aspects of that, but there's so much more content that, the, that Disney has churned out over its entire lifetime that mm -hmm. when you look at the entire lump sum of the entire list, it hits the nostalgia factor for anyone who is ages zero to 100. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're 70 or 80, chances are there's a movie in there that you saw as a kid. If you're oh. 50 or 60, there's a movies that you saw as a kid. And then you just work your way back to, you know, current day moms and dads who are wanting to introduce movies to their children that they grew up with, right? So, I mean, everybody who's ever seen a Disney movie will have something that will take them back to a very, a very, very long, long time ago that will make them feel like a kid again. And I think that is one of the benefits that Disney Plus will have 
for it on launch day is they do have a wealth of content and just about everybody on the planet will have seen one of those things and there will be a nostalgia factor triggered for that person that will say, oh, mm-hmm. I'd do anything to see that movie again. Let's get it for just a month and try it out. And then 30 months later, they're like, we're still not even halfway through the list of stuff that came out on day one. There's so much crap here. There were actually a number of people who kind of push back and it's like, that's way too much stuff. I don't have enough time to watch all of this. I don't know if I should subscribe to to disney plus because i I actually have a life i I can't sit and watch every single disney movie or every single fox movie or or every episode of the simpsons but it's not meant to be that it's not Mm -hmm. like you're going to be strapped to a chair and your eyes are going to be strapped open like you're at the end of a (laughs) clockwork orange and you have to sit there and watch the entire disney library from beginning to end that's not what this is all right we're going to circle back to this on the next show folks so hang in there in the meantime, if you're looking for something else to listen to, we, of course, have Disney Dish with Lentesta. We have the fine-tuning, which covers animation news with Drew Taylor. We have Looking at Lucasfilm, where we talk about all uh, all related Star Wars stuff with Dan Zare, uh, Universal Joint, which you know what's going on at the Universal Parks and Resorts. And we have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid, who's down at Disney World right now doing research for that. If you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend this show. If you get out of Bandcamp and subscribe, that's what will help Aaron and I pay for our subscription to Disney+. And for now, folks, uh, on behalf of Mr. Adams, thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with a brand new show. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.